listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Thursday, April 8th in Seoul, but right now it is still the evening of Wednesday, April the 7th on the East Coast of the United States, where I'm joined via Zoom by today's guest, Anthony Ruggiero, to talk about sanctions on North Korea and the U.S. National Security Council and lots of related topics. But before we do that, please do leave a review about this podcast wherever you can and share it with everyone you know. Secondly, check out nknews.org consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and it helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Now, my guest today, Anthony Ruggiero, is an expert on targeted financial sanctions and proliferation issues, especially in regard to Iran's and North Korea's weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missile programs and biodefense. He's currently a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Previously, he's had a long and distinguished period of service in the U.S. government, working on security and North Korea-related issues. Most recently, he was in the National Security Council from July 2018 to January 2021, first as North Korea Director, then as Senior Director, Weapons of Mass Destruction Bureau, and finally as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director, Counterproliferation and Biodefense. You can find Anthony Ruggiero on the Twitter space at NatSecAnthony, or one word. Thank you for joining me on the show today, Anthony Ruggiero. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Before we get into sanctions, I want to talk briefly about the uh, U.S. travel ban on American citizens going to North Korea uh, that was instituted back in uh, 2017 in the wake of the very sad death of Otto Warmbier. Uh, You spoke in support of that travel ban in early 2017, saying, the goal would be simply to restrict tourist travel to North Korea, something which would help protect the safety of U.S. nationals and, alongside other policy recommendations, contribute more towards an effective North Korea policy. But there's also unintended consequences. Humanitarian workers require special use passports, uh, single use passports, sorry, and an interview with someone from the State Department before each visit. Uh, Anthony, if the goal was only to block tourism from U.S. citizens, why does everybody have to suffer equally? Well, I think the uh, the additional beyond uh, just the tourism aspect is that uh, is that North Korea basically kidnapped American citizens, as you met, mentioned. Otto Wambier uh, is the is the w- one case example of that, but there are others. Unfortunately, there are others. Unfortunately, there was even Otto Wambier. Uh, had to happen. Uh, there's no evidence, as far as I'm aware, that North Korea has changed their approach. Uh, and so, you know, it would be dangerous uh, to uh, to remove those restrictions uh, right now just for American citizens and for humanitarian uh, organizations. And certainly, you know, they are the ones that are that are working for the North for the North Korean people which is you know, sad to say in the sense that the North Korean regime is not actually as interested in the North Korean people uh, as humanitarian organizations. Certainly the State Department should, uh, if, if there are still issues, I, I know there were some issues initially as the program was stood up, but if there still are issues, then the State Department uh, can work toward that and, and try and streamline that process as best as they can. What would it take for the U.S. government to allow that travel ban to expire or to lift it? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the challenge there, of course, is that, you know, the North Koreans aren't even answering the Biden administration's calls with regard to uh, negotiations. So, you know, it, doing it without some kind of assurance that the North Koreans uh, would not start kidnapping Americans again. And, you know, uh, let's remember that the North Koreans 
unfortunately like to hold Americans and then get former presidents or other U.S. dignitaries to go to North Korea to negotiate their their release, and you know that that is in my mind North Korean way to really try and distract from uh, what we're looking to do, which is to to have a negotiation over their nuclear missile programs. Okay, uh, moving on to the uh, the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Uh, for a long time, North Korea was on that list. And in 2008, President George W. Bush removed North Korea from the list. Uh, in 2017, President Trump put them back on the list again. And in an interview with uh, NK News uh, back in November 2017, you said, the Kim regime should not have been removed from the list in 2008, and the U.S. government should have relisted it before today. Today's designation is long overdue as North Korea continued its sponsorship of terrorism. Uh, would you say the same thing today? Absolutely. That, that guy sounds very smart. <laughs> um, you know, um, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, the 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 you know the first thing to remember is that the the North Koreans were removed as part of an exchange in in 2008 from the state sponsor of terrorism list as part of an exchange for negotiations, for the denuclearization negotiation. And it wasn't that much far, it wasn't that much longer after they were removed that the negotiations unraveled. Uh, And so, you know, the North Koreans didn't live up to their end of the bargain. So that's the first one. The second one is that, you know, North Koreans have a long history of, uh, of engaging in activities with other state sponsors of terrorism, Iran being one of them, and uh, other countries that are certainly on that list, um, you know, uh, come to mind. Uh, the the other rationale, as as far as I recall, was for the Sony hack uh, mm-hmm. in 2014, in which they uh, issued uh, terrorist threats, noting they were going to have a 9/11 style attack on movie theaters that uh, that that showed the movie, really trying to reach into America. And, and and remove our, our freedom of expression, freedom of speech, uh, in in really uh, you know despicable ways. And then you, the, I think the other reason rationale that was provided was the uh, use of chemical weapons in a, in an airport against Kim Jong Nam. Um, certainly, there was no reason to use that kind of weapon in a public area, and and I believe they were probably sending a message to uh, other defectors. Okay, so that was a couple of warm-up topics just to uh, to get you started. Uh, let's get into the uh, the meat of uh, of the discussion, talking about sanctions uh, against North Korea. It's certainly a topic that we've uh, dealt with a number of times in our uh, podcast series. Uh, first of all, from your perspective, what's the aim of uh, U.S. and U.N. sanctions against North Korea? Right. I mean, for me, you know, there there are two really related, uh, you know, uh, goals of sanctions. The first is really directed at going after the activities in question as best as you can, right? So if you're looking at trying to impact the financing of these weapons programs, you can do that with sanctions. If you're looking to uh, stop particular items going into the programs, you can do that. If you're trying to prevent North Korea from selling commodities such as coal, which would then they would obviously then turn into resources or cash that they could use for these programs. So that that's one way to use sanctions. I think the other goal of sanctions 
is to get North Korea to engage meaningfully in negotiations. And, and certainly, um, you know, that has happened before. You know, I think from my perspective, too, I think uh, people equate sanctions and pressure, but they're, they're slightly different. So when I think of sanctions, I think of, you know, on commodities and financial sanctions and, and designations of entities and individuals, but there's, of course, military pressure, uh, whether it's bomber flights or, or um, you know, or aircraft carriers, their diplomatic pressure, whether through the UN or bilaterally. So there, there are different elements of pressure, but I think they, they're uh, focused on the, the, those same two goals. Okay, which is the, uh, uh, the, the stopping or curtailing of uh, uh, activities related to the North Korean weapons programs and to, uh, to encourage North Korea to, as you say, engage meaningfully on uh, denuclearization. That's right. right. Uh, what about secondary sanctions? Could you tell our listeners what they are and how they're believed to work? Right. I think in this context, I think the way that people refer to secondary sanctions is really uh, talking about non-North Korean entities and individuals that are engaged in activities that are, in, in for the most part, working for or on behalf of the North Koreans. In some cases, what you'll see is you'll see entities and individuals that are unwitting or unknowing that they are working with the North Koreans. So the North Koreans are, are smart about trying to hide their, uh, their uh, in involvement in the activity. And then in that circumstance, back to what I said about, you know, there's different kinds, kinds of pressure, mm -hmm. you know, you could use diplomatic pressure to try and get the, those, those persons to stop those activities. And if they do, then of course you don't need to use designations or anything like that. But then there's another category of people people in this basket who are engaged in these activities essentially wittingly or knowingly uh, and those those people are in other other circumstances also probably helping the North Koreans hide these activities and in that those circumstances that's where you'll likely see you know for example designation of Chinese companies and individuals or even in Europe or you know so in some of our US allies as well. It also, it seems sometimes that I'm hearing or reading about uh, a kind of an overreach of secondary sanctions where um, other organizations like uh, international aid organizations or indeed the uh, Pyongyang University of Science and Technology find it difficult to, to do activities in North Korea because, uh, for example, their bank or financial institution will uh, close their account or, or freeze their uh, money because they're doing something in North Korea. And even if it's not something that's sanctioned, you know, the bank is just too skittish to, uh, to, to be involved in anything related to North Korea. Right. I mean, that, that, that's always a complicated subject. And, and the, the, least the least complicated part of it is that uh, it's usually the North Koreans that are making this issue complicated. In other words, they will, the North Koreans will take one of their banks uh, that are that are being used for um, humanitarian, the, the processing of humanitarian transactions. And then the North Koreans know that that avenue is open to the international financial system and they will use that bank for other purposes mm. that north korean bank and then so for for the united states and and for other countries it becomes difficult to allow that bank to continue to operate in the international financial system and so it certainly makes it more complicated uh, but you know at at some point uh, the north koreans 
have to uh, make available those kinds of channels that are open for that kind of you know humanitarian aid. Are sanctions ever designed or intended to be punitive? Yeah, you know, from my perspective, that's not the purpose of them. Uh, you know, I don't think I think you know in the past, not on North Korea, but in the you know you know decades ago, there used to be these broad-based sanctions that were enacted, and I think the goal of you know, the targeted sanctions that we've favored over the last, you know, almost 20 years uh, is, is, is targeted at, you know, the points I made earlier, which is focused on the activities or the persons engaged in those activities, and then uh, trying to have the most impact on uh, getting the, the target, in this case, North Korea, back to negotiations. But, you know, I don't think it, uh, you know, from my perspective, they're not supposed to be punitive. We often hear that people want to make a, a distinction, a clear distinction between the government and the, the leadership of North Korea and the uh, you know, 20 or so million uh, ordinary citizens of North Korea. The most recent uh, sanctions in the last few years, you know, during the time of maximum pressure, um, for example, you know, even to the point where North Korea couldn't sell many of its products overseas, these are sanctions that are supposed to hurt the ordinary people in North Korea, even though that's not the aim, as you say, they're not intended to be punitive. So how how does the US government ensure that sanctions don't adversely affect the humanitarian situation in North Korea? Is that even possible? You know, from my pre- my perspective, the premise is that North Korea sells these commodities and then is going to use that money for the North Korean people. I think, you know, from my perspective, that's a false premise because what we know what the North Koreans do, uh, what the North Korean regime does. Uh, they're, they're, they're not, you know, when Kim Jong-un says that, you know, that there's got to be more belt tightening or that they're, you know, they're in hard economic times, you know, he's not suffering. He's not, he's not driving around in a, you know, in a, you know, an economy car. Mm. He's driving around in a luxury car. He's eating well. He's got a lot of villas. He's got a yacht. That's where his money goes to. That's where that money goes to. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, and they sell fishing rights. They sell the fishing rights uh, that even ordinary citizens could use, right? And they sell that to others. Um, and so, you know, they sell seafood. That's protein that the North Korean people could use. Uh, and unfortunately, I can go on and on and on. But, you know, from from my perspective, having, you know, focused on North Korea for the better part of the last 20 years is that, you know, that money does not go to the North Korean people. That is why the sanctions are targeting that money and those commodities that are being sold. How do we explain the, the seeming ability of the North Korean leadership not to be hurt by sanctions or not to care about them? I mean, as you say, I mean, Kim Jong-un is not tightening his belt, but he's asking his people to tighten their belt. So how do we make sense of that? And what are we to do in reaction to that? Right. I mean, I think, you know, he likes to project that he's uh, that he's not hurt by them, but he certainly is uh, noting that they are hurting and willing, as you noted, uh, to push that on the North Korean people. You know, I would say that, you know, when you look at the Trump administration, there's kind of two halves of their four years, uh, the first half being you know, for the most part, it, it might not be exactly half, but, you know, the first part was your maximum pressure. 
Uh, and then your second part was, you know, engagement. Mm. And, you know, from my perspective, that sharp increase in pressure, and I use the phrase pressure because it included the sanctions and des designations and diplomatic, you know, diplomatic pressure and military pressure, all of that, uh, you know, produced the high level engagement uh, that we got to. But then when we were engaging, when the Trump administration was engaging, you saw a natural leveling off or, in fact, decrease in pressure. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think we'll probably talk later. But I think from my perspective, you know, that that's there. There's some bandwidth there for the Biden administration to make up uh, and see if the North Koreans, Kim in particular, are ready to negotiate again. Are uh, sanctions regimes held accountable for whether they're achieving the stated goals or not? Is there a process of review and audit of sanctions? In the case of North Korea, we have a UN panel of experts. Uh, and so they have a, a report, uh, you know, the, the one they just put out, I want to say it was last week, mm. uh, but sometime this month, uh, you know, detailed, you know, from my perspective, it's really a roadmap. Uh, of, you know, the, the ways that the North Koreans have been able to evade sanctions. And so when you look at, you know, how can you tighten sanctions, that that would be one way, one way to do it. And I think they had, um, looking forward here, 29 recommendations, you know, 29 recommendations that, you know, the, that the Biden administration hopefully is looking at and, and thinking about ways to, to tighten those loopholes. Now, are all these, uh, I, I confess I haven't read through the 29 recommendations, are all of them uh, designed to uh, or encouraging the tightening of sanctions? Are there any that say, oh, here's one that accidentally, um, you know, uh, decreased the access to healthcare and we should loosen up on that one or anything like that? Well, that's part of their mandate is to look at uh, that kind of uh, unintended consequences. Mm. And I think, um, you know, I'm trying to find the, the, the point here, but the, the note in here, um, but, you know, I don't think they made a judgment on that uh, recently. So I, I, I think that, as I've noted before, you know, I think the, the, the issue here is that, you know, the North Koreans are the ones who make it incredibly difficult um, when, they, when they use every available channel that they have uh, at their disposal for their weapons programs, you know, as opposed to using those resources uh, for their people. What um, what do you think is the best argument against sanctions, and how do you counter it? Well, in general, I don't I don't make a lot of uh, of, of that uh, argument, but I think it's a it can be a useful exercise. I, I think you know the 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 question here is I think for sanctions the the part that uh, we have not shown a, a good uh, effort on is, you know, if, if you were, if you can achieve those two goals that I, I set out, right, mm -hmm. um, addressing the activities directly or indirectly, and then getting meaningful negotiations at what, at what, so, so if you achieve those both goals, then you're engaged in meaningful negotiations. At what point are you rolling back sanctions? Is it is it a big for big scenario? Is it the end of a process, the achievement of denuclearization? Are there are there steps along the way where you can uh, reduce those sanctions, a, a smaller portion of those sanctions? 
But of course, once you give up your leverage, then, um, you know, then the North Koreans, when we've done that through negotiations, the North Koreans then have in, in the past uh, really pocketed those uh, and then moved on. What's the current state of sanctions on North Korea? And is there anything left that hasn't been sanctioned yet? I don't think we, we would, there's a place for new sanctions. Maybe there are people who have ideas on new things that, that should be targeted. I think that, you know, when I, when I look at the panel of experts report uh, and they, you know, they talk about, you know, North Korea is still exporting coal, which is, which is completely prohibited by the UN resolution. So that would be, that would certainly be an easy one. North Korea still has access to international banking channels, uh, which is prohibited by the resolutions. Uh, they have, they still have overseas banking and proliferation representatives over, uh, and and they're engaged in the activities. That's prohibited by the resolutions. Uh, there's still overseas laborers from North Korea who and and all of that funding that those laborers get a large portion I should say not all but mm. you know uh, an overwhelming portion goes back to the regime you know malicious cyber activities uh, North Korea Iran ballistic missile cooperation so you know there's there's certainly more there that that can be uh, that can be focused on so it sounds like it's more about enforcement of existing sanctions than adding any new ones it's a bit like uh, the problem with laws in any country right there, there are there are laws against the speeding of cars but if you don't enforce them then they're in effect uh, useless that's right i mean i think i think any look at sanctions would start with enforcement and part of that would be you know as i noted the diplomatic pressure to go back to some of these countries that might be engaging with north korea uh you know part of that would be designating some of these entities and individuals that have uh you know backfilled for previously designated entities just going back to your question on humanitarian consequences for the sure. civilian population unfortunately i when i was reading it uh, earlier today I, I didn't organize my pages correctly but uh you know i think what the panel basically had sort of uh dueling points on this but uh they, their their main point was they were unable to make a, a quantitative assess assessment of the unintended consequences of UN sanctions, mm. but notes during the reporting period that sanctions likely had unintended consequences affecting the civilian population. But then there's also points about, you know, economic mismanagement by the North Koreans, making it very difficult to make a, a, a full judgment in that perspective. So it sounds like there may be some more study required to, to really quantify what those uh, unintended consequences are. Right. It, I think it still goes back to the what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, it's 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 hard to make a judgment on whether it's the sanctions that are having these consequences when you you don't actually know how much money is coming into North Korea because yeah. most of that is coming from sanctions evasion and North Korea doesn't really report that like mm -hmm. a normal country. And then how much of that money is going to the North Korean people? I think there are some of us who can make that, you know, make that assessment, at least not a, uh, not a bona fide judgment, but at least an assessment that, uh, that most of that money is not going to the North Korean people. Now, we must talk a little bit about China's role in enforcing sanctions and helping to bring North Korea to the negotiating table. Uh, in May 2017, you said to NK News that you didn't believe China would give the U.S. what it needs when it comes to North Korea. 
Obviously, a lot has happened in the four years since you made that remark, but do you still believe that China will never do enough to satisfy Washington's overriding goals with North Korea and that Beijing only acts when under real pressure? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think they do act under pressure, just as just as the U.S. has had, uh, you know, really a reevaluation of their their the, our, of our broader relationship with China. You know, is it has been is overdue, and 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 elements of that uh, seemingly are going to be kept by the new administration. But on the North Korea side, there had always been this um, this assumption uh, that if if you if you targeted Chinese entities and individuals for sanctions that China somehow would retaliate uh, and they would either not cooperate on sanctions or they would not cooperate in another area, non-North Korea area, that was just as important to the United States. I think the reverse has happened when Obama at the end of his administration targeted uh, a Chinese network and then President Trump continued that activities, you did see an uptick in in Chinese implementation of sanctions. Because, you know, from my perspective, I firmly believe that the Chinese government and in particular Chinese banks are not going to choose North Korea over their access to the American financial system. And at some point, that's what it may come down to. Uh, and so part of this is going to be that the Chinese are going to have to do some self-policing uh, with regard to the sanctions activity ongoing inside their country. In uh, October 2017, you pointed out that China wasn't implementing its own decree in which the uh, China's Ministry of Commerce said it would no longer import North Korean coal for the remainder of that year. Uh, and that therefore, it wasn't implementing UN sanctions. Do you think that China sees it in its own interest to... Um, you know, tacitly allow North Korea to keep its nuclear weapons. Well, I think for for the Chinese, they you know that's certainly uh, something I've heard other scholars uh, you know uh, describe. I, I think from my perspective, that ends not in the way that China wants, right? Mm-hmm. In a in a scenario where North Korea keeps its nuclear weapons. North Korea and China are probably not the only two countries in Asia that have nuclear weapons in that future. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't believe that the the uh, government in Beijing thinks that they're safer with um, more than two, including themselves, as nuclear weapon states. Uh, I think, you know, as, as we move further down and uh, North Korea retains its nuclear weapons program. Other countries acquiring nuclear weapons becomes uh, probably more of a uh, of something that that we have to be uh, very concerned about. Right. Well, um, let's uh, move on to your time in the National Security Council under President Donald Trump. You joined the NSC in July 2018, not long after the Singaporean summit, in which the leaders of both the U.S. and North Korea made a statement committing to North Korean denuclearization and improved relations and a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. When you joined the NSC, what was the mood like in the Trump administration about the possibility of real improvement in US-North Korea relations? 
Right. I think, you know, it's been, uh, it was an interesting two and a half years in the, in the Trump administration. Uh, you know, the first year of that, I was the director for North Korea, as you said earlier, and then uh, senior director um, responsible really for global nonproliferation policy amongst other issues. But, you know, I think uh, you know, the difference, the di difference with the Trump administration policy, not just the the beginning parts of that that we talked about in terms of the uh, the maximum pressure and, yeah. and other elements is, is really we, we never we we've never had an engagement at that level at the at the leader to leader level uh, and you know certainly there I think there was hope that uh, that Kim Jong Un had had made a strategic decision to denuclearize I think. Um, what was that two plus years later mm. i think uh, at least we we know that that they haven't gone far enough or at least kim has not made that strategic decision yet uh hopefully he'll do so soon i think um i think my writings are you know my public writings are, are very clear about what i think about the nature of the kim regime and uh you know i think that they you know as i talked about earlier in terms of what's the right sequencing for reducing pressure. And mm. certainly, you know, my view was and still is that, you know, unless we see, unless we saw or, or going forward, see real tangible steps by the North Koreans toward denuclearization, uh, that that pressure really needs to remain. And, you know, what they, what they did at, at the sites uh, eventually you know, should be acknowledged, but that was not, you know, tangible steps toward denuclearization. Okay, but you weren't uh, opposed to the idea of top-level diplomacy, you know, leader-to-leader -leader diplomacy per se. I can't recall whether I was opposed or not. I mean, certainly when you when you join government, uh, you know, you have your own personal views. But uh, sure. in this case, uh, you know, I know a lot of people like to say that you know, the president calls the shots, but in, in this case in particular, it was pretty clear that that's, uh, that's, that's what, would ha what was happening in this policy. Now, um, of course, you said at the time, uh, just after the Singapore summit, that you wanted President Trump to keep maximum pressure on, but that didn't really work. Has that momentum been lost for good? Can maximum pressure ever be applied again, do you think? I think we uh, we have the elements of the sanctions that are there, right? We talked right. about earlier that there's no need to, I mean, maybe there, you know, I should be fair. Maybe there are people who have uh, ideas. I, I have not, um, I have not uh, spent um, some of my post-government time yet looking at North Korea sanctions uh, more closely, but uh, you know, the, the, there is, there can be an effort to, implement the sanctions, which I think, you know, gets you closer to the maximum pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, what is always clear too, is it's, it's, it's different. It's different than Iran, right? There, there's a lot of people who don't want to be doing business with North Korea. Mm. Uh, but, you know, at some level that's, you know, uh, working on the edges, it, it really gets back to your, your previous question about the role of China. Right. Is China ready and willing yes. to start to cut some of these uh, activities out? What what strikes you, what strikes me, I should be more clear in terms because it was uh, I was the one reading it. But, you know, when you read through the panel of experts report, mm. what strikes me is is really the role that China 
has been playing in the sanctions of Asian, uh, and you know their their backhanded uh, response uh, to the panel's inquiries. But again, you know, there's there's a response, there's an action reaction to that, right? The Biden administration can go to China and say, you need to clean some of these uh, things up with regard to the coal and, and other elements. And if the Chinese say no or don't act, the Biden administration has the U.S. sanctions in place that can target those Chinese companies and individuals. And as I noted earlier, the Chinese then, in, in most cases, react to that in a more positive way than I think some people uh, thought before we started doing that. Yes, although lately, and this is not North Korea related, but just lately, uh, we've seen China react in a, in a, a strong and a negative way to, uh, for example, private companies raising issues of, of Uyghur human rights in China, and then they suddenly find themselves no longer able to sell their products in China. But that's, I mean, that's slightly different, right? That's yes. that's a Chinese reaction to sanctions, whether it's from governments or from private companies, on what they consider an internal matter. This is ah. this. Th these are these are for the most part. These are opportunists yeah. in China trying to make a quick buck at the expense of North Korea, at the expense of the Chinese government, and taking it from North Korea, I think slightly different. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I would make a slightly different point in terms of the challenge here, which is the US-China relationship, right? Mm. You know, I expect going forward, given that it there that there will be tension, yeah. that everything will be transactional in the sense of, if we want this from the Chinese, they will ask for something in return. Right. Now, as I noted, the difference here is that if we're not comfortable giving that quote unquote something in return, the other option is to just be able to use sanctions against the Chinese uh, companies and individuals. Uh, looking back at your uh, time, your two and a half years in the uh, National Security Council, what did you learn about coordination among different parts of US government on North Korea policy? For for me, it was a privilege to to serve again. I'm I'm I I got close to my 20 year mark. Uh, didn't quite get there in in government service, but mm -hmm. uh, you know it's always a privilege to serve. And um, but inside the you know inside the government, um, you know coordination, uh, you know is always a an interesting part of the process. You know I, it was a different perspective for me because I worked at the State Department and the Treasury Department, two executive branch agencies. Yeah. Obviously, I worked at the I worked on Capitol Hill, so that was a different perspective. But at the NSC, um, the role really is you chair the meetings of these government agencies, these government yeah. departments, uh, and you know I think we had an opportunity to shape that policy going forward. Um, certainly, there's always uh, you know vigorous vigorous debate on the the right direction uh, of the policy uh, but i you know i think um you know the president set the goals for the policy and uh, in some cases uh provided very clear direction and and then we implemented that direction in other cases uh we had recommendations that that went up through the process and and went went up to the presidential level for decision 
Yeah, but as you said, I mean, President Trump very much uh, calls the shots. He's uh, He was his own man in terms of decision-making. Does that mean a lot of your recommendations fell by the wayside? Yeah, I mean, I won't I won't go through, uh, you know, uh, wins and losses uh, in terms of that. But, I, you know, I'll also say that, you know, he's not the first president to uh, call uh, call the shots on on subjects like that. Right. Whether it's uh, North Korea policy in particular, uh, you know, I'm sure the Bush administration had some of that. And, um, you know, the Obama administration with Iran policy. And, and so, you know, uh, those kinds of issues uh, certainly, uh, you know, raised the profile. And, and uh, you know, we're, we were all focused on denuclearization as the, as the, the end point and goal. I think I remember a time when uh, Treasury announced some new sanctions on North Korea and President Trump personally reversed them. I can't remember whether that was in 2018 or 2019. Uh, do you recall what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I definitely remember uh, that 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 was a tweet, I believe, uh, ah. that was issued. Yeah. Well, do you think that was a strategic decision or a bit of an own goal? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think uh, I think that will be certainly something that uh, that historians will look at and uh, and and wonder, uh, you know, what happened. I, I don't think any sanctions were actually reversed, if uh, I recall. But uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember. But uh, I, I remember recall it being a tweet. Uh, but I think it was after the sanctions had come out. It felt a little bit like the teeth had come out of the sanctions, if not reversed, at least defanged. Well, I think, you know, I think it probably, you know, showed broad, you know, from a, a broader perspective that, you know, where the president's uh, uh, focus was yeah. and it was on, you know, really on engagement with uh, Kim Jong-un and, uh, you know, we certainly got other sort of sanctions out occasionally, uh, but without that sustained effort, uh, you know, you either you either see the pressure plateau or, or in some cases, reduce. Um, looking back now on your uh, two and a half years at the National Security Council, what do you think was done right and what was done wrong in terms of uh, engagement and uh, negotiations with North Korea? Sure. And, I, you know, I've, I said this before I went in and, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I still believe this, that, you know, our U.S. policy toward North Korea has unfortunately been a bipartisan failure. I mean, yeah. it goes all the way back to, you know, President Clinton and and President uh, W. Bush and President Obama and, and President Trump. Uh, and, you know, the consistent theme, I think, you know, throughout uh, and it might, you know, I think is, you know, we go through these phases where we apply pressure to varying degrees and then you know we get engagement with north korea and then we somehow stop that pressure now north korea doesn't stop their activities going Mm. back to the original goals right to to address those activities those activities continue and in some cases when you're talking about negotiations let's remember in the 90s the north koreans built their enrichment program when they were supposed to be abiding by the agreed framework. And then they built a nuclear reactor in Syria when they're engaged in negotiations in the six party talks. Right. So those things happen. Uh, And so I think the challenge of North Korea policy is that we have not been able to use both elements, both pressure and negotiations at the same time. And, And unfortunately, Trump uh, fell into the same trap that his predecessors fell into. 
Now, you've said before that North Korea should provide a full and complete nuclear declaration to prove that it's committed to taking tangible steps toward denuclearization. Do you think it can ever be persuaded to do that? If they're serious about denuclearization, that's what it's going to take because, you know, part of that effort is going to require verification of their of their declaration, verification of their activities uh, in order to just simply you know, safely be able to disable some of these facilities. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't you know, I, I, I think it's been sort of put up in the past that that the declaration is it would be a challenge. I, I think if we're at the point where we're we're talking through what a what a real declaration looks like, mm. um, then maybe we've made some significant progress going forward. Um, you know, I think the North Koreans are well aware of what's going on in their programs and it might take some time, but they can they can make an accurate declaration if the, declaration if they choose to do so. As you point out, it's the uh, uh, the verification that's the um, the tricky part, and that's such an invasive procedure. North Korea's made very plain over the years that it finds that a uh, a breach of its own national sovereignty, basically having its uh, laying its country open for inspectors to go around and uh, and, and verify, you know, whether the uh, declaration is full and complete or whether the denuclearization is full and complete. But I mean, that's a, that's a necessary, uh, you know, no one's going to take North Korea's word for it, right? Um, mm. You know, I think without people on the ground to to see that and witness that and 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 really uh you know see the dismantling and disabling if we ever get back to that point you know that's going to be a necessary requirement and 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 the things that they're going to ask for in exchange will likely be equally significant uh so so there might be some pain on both sides that brings us kind of to where we are now. Uh, we're here in the uh, recently inaugurated Biden presidency. There's currently a policy review underway on how to best to deal with North Korea going forward. Uh, where do you think that will lead U.S. policy? And, and should that goal remain, you know, the uh, uh, CVID denuclearization, or could it end up switching to an arms control agreement to limit North Korea's nuclear and, and missile programs? Yeah, I think the the signals that the administration, the Biden administration, just to be clear, have been have been putting out is is denuclearization is going to be the goal. I think, mm. to my mind, is you know the the steps along the way of, of getting there is going to be is, is really going to be the question. I, I know I know there are certainly other scholars out there who are making the argument. Uh, for an arms control or, or limiting agreement. And there's, you know, I, I think there are some circumstances where, you know, that that type of agreement would be a step toward denuclearization. And then there, I think there are others that are saying that would be the agreement, the inter, the, the sort of limited or arms control agreement mm. uh, would be the end goal. And, and from my perspective, that's dangerous for a couple of reasons. The mm. first is that, you know, I, I don't think that helps from the global nonproliferation perspective. So in a scenario where we are accepting 
some kind of nuclear weapons in North Korea. It's not clear to me whether it would include North Korea nuclear weapons, but it would certainly include the knowledge and know-how. How do you go to Iran and, and prevent them from acquiring a nuclear weapon or other countries, frankly, um, that would want a nuclear weapon? Uh, the other thing is what we talked about before in terms of inspections. Mm. A limited or arms control agreement would have intrusive inspections likely in perpetuity because that uh, describes i would imagine allowing them to keep certain facilities mm. but allowing those facilities to continue to operate and so how exactly would we have any level of confidence that they're not siphoning off material for weapons programs that are prohibited so i think that would be a challenge the other thing to keep in mind as i mentioned earlier is that you know i think the agreed framework in, in 1994 and the 2005 joint statement by their by their nature were limited agreements. Uh, and I think the goals in those was to negotiate larger deals, uh, at least down the line, or at least the implementation of those deals. But in each of those instances, the North Koreans were cheating um, almost as soon as they uh, as soon as they agreed to it. Uh, you know, they started an enrichment program, a covert enrichment program that that was only discovered by uh, by by uh, by you know, by uh, by chance, right? Mm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the the same thing holds for a nuclear reactor that the North Koreans built in Syria. So, um, you know, I, I I know a denuclearization agreement will be hard mm. to negotiate. It will be difficult to negotiate, but uh, that should and, and really remain the goal because if that's not our goal, then it will have broader implications than just North Korea. From your experience in different arms of the government, are you able to give any insight into how a, uh, a broad policy review like this actually works? I would imagine that the National Security Council is, is, is leading that effort uh, because that's the one part of the government where you can bring all of the elements of the, of the government together mm. uh, for this kind of policy review. It, it's sort of your classic options paper. Uh, I think they would think through each of the different options, um, you know, perhaps, and, and hopefully they would think outside the box as best as they can. Yeah. Uh, right. And then, you know, then you would, then you'd really work through what are the pros and cons of each of those options. Uh, I know whenever I, whenever I ran, um, meetings where where they were contentious. I'm not saying that this is necessarily contentious, but mm. um, where you had different options or people were very uh, very stuck on their options. I would have the people who liked uh, option A, uh, you know, write the pros for option A, but then yeah. the cons for option B, and do the mm -hmm. same thing for the option B people. And then you you found that those were you know those were good products where you could really just sort of lay the options on the table. Yeah. Now, part of this also will be what are their assumptions in terms of, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, military pressure, you know, are they in a place where they could even do military pressure on North Korea, mm. given China and Iran and, you know, all these other issues that are that are certainly out there. So th that will be sort of above all of those options. And then they'll, they'll think through the resources that are necessary to implement all of those options. And then I think the last thing they would they would probably talk through is, 
you know, who, if negotiations, which, which it sounds like they, they are interested in doing, cause they, they've called North Korea several times, as mm. they've said publicly, who would lead that effort. Right. And, and then there's been different permutations of that through the administrations, but that would likely be in there as well. And then I think I said the last thing, but this, this will be the last thing. <laughs> what we talked about earlier is the leader to leader level engagement. You know, would they keep that? What under what circumstances would be they interested in doing that? Would it be a circumstance where the two leaders are signing an agreement? Is it yeah. a circumstance where there's just this one really hard issue, difficult issue, the negotiators couldn't solve, and the leaders would have to negotiate in some way? Um, so I think all of those elements, and then that would start sort of at a at perhaps at the senior director level. Um, which is senior enough to really start that. It might be even lower than that. And then it would move all the way through the process, likely up to and including, you know, the president and, and the president in, in those circumstances would make the final decision, you know, whether, you know, whether in a, in an Oval Office meeting or, or in a, with, you know, the national, the, the true national security council meeting that he chairs mm. uh, and gets inputs from, from all of his cabinet officials and the vice president and, and other relevant officials. And what's likely to be the physical outcome of that policy review? Is it like a, a big fat book or a series of binders or a, a brief policy paper? And, and what will we outside the government, uh, will we know when that policy review has been completed and something's been presented to the president or the NSC meeting? It's a great question. And uh, it's not clear how that will um, you know, how we will know it's finished. Uh, maybe we'll know through a leak. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a whether it's a or or an authorized disclosure from the government, um, you know, it could happen during the the meeting with the Japanese prime minister uh, mm -hmm. that I think is upcoming. Right, right. It could happen uh, during that part portion. They could put out a fact sheet, uh, you know, listing out what the policy is. They could have a senior U.S. official official give a give a speech on North Korea. Um, they could, you know, they could name a, a North Korean negotiator and then put that person in front of the press no. or have that person give a speech. Um, so there's a lot of options that they there will there will necessarily be a private element of their policy that they obviously will not share. Uh, but I think for uh, for, you know, the purposes of trying to influence people who might be engaged in activities that they want to deter uh, they will likely have a public element of that's of that policy but it's unclear how they will roll that out are you able to share with us any hot tips on who you think might be a negotiator or point person to talk with north korea I unfortunately I don't have any uh, of those kind of tips right now, but mm -hmm. uh, you know there there are a lot of good people uh, you know that that have worked this issue uh, equally as long uh, inside the Biden administration. So I'm I'm, I'm certain that they are uh, they they're really working through this issue, and uh, you know uh, even though we we have all uh, you know been been uh, you know trying to solve this issue, uh, we haven't gotten there yet, but uh, hopefully we will soon. Are you open to going back into that kind of work if you're asked? Into the Biden administration? Yeah, I don't I don't foresee that happening, but uh but I'm also uh enjoying too much my uh time outside of government and uh <laughs> you know, uh working in the NSC was uh certainly something uh 
you know, that I, I didn't think was going to happen earlier in my career, but, but, but did wind up happening. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, it was a privilege to, uh, to, to lead the, uh, mostly career officials in the directorate. Um, and so, uh, but it certainly was very, a very sp- stressful job. Mm. Uh, and I, I enjoy, uh, I enjoy, uh, you know, we're working from home now, so that's definitely a new, <laughs> yes. new element for me, but, uh, you know, I enjoy, uh, providing my opinions, uh, a little more freely and, uh, in the open. Do you have any plans to release a, uh, tell all memoir or a Roman, a cliff? Uh, I don't have any of those plans at this time. Right now, I'm I'm, I'm focused on uh, not just North Korea, but I, I've been uh, you know focusing on uh, you know broader non-proliferation policy, focusing mm-hmm. on things like uh, COVID origins and mm-hmm. uh, you know other things of that sort. So uh, you know I, I haven't gotten to the uh, longer-term projects that uh, that I might need to work on. Hey, just a, a practical question here: when um... You said earlier that you know someone in the, the Biden government called North Korea and you know said, "Hey, we'd like to have some communication." How does that normally work? Does that normally mean they call the office of the delegation to the United Nations in New York and and suggest a meeting? I mean, that's one of the ways. I, I assume that they uh, that they did it. Uh, the way I read some of the commentary, both the sort of authorized leak, and, well, I shouldn't say authorized leak, but authorized disclosure, sort of initially, and then yeah. more more of the officials talking on the record. Mm-hmm. It sounded like more than one way mm-hmm. um and certainly speaking about it in public saying hey we're ready to talk is another way to do it right and, and north koreans heard them yeah uh, certainly um but you know there's other mechanisms through you know whether it's the south korean government or or, or other other mechanisms that are available uh, but the new york channel usually is is the easiest one mm-hmm. um it, as uh, I think, as we both know, that those those decisions go to the top in Pyongyang. So, um, the, the whole question of you know there being different uh, but imperfect channels to North Korea has always fascinated me. Uh, I remember when I went to on one of those demilitarized zone tours up to Panmunjom, and uh, the you know, the soldier leading the tour there would tell stories about how the North Koreans wouldn't pick up the phone. So if the uh, if the UNC side had something to communicate, they would go out there with a bullhorn and just shout it at them, basically. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? I mean, I think the other part, the other element that's lost, too, is there's, you know, quite a few embassies that have left North Korea because mostly because of the COVID situation, yeah. right? Um, the uh, So that that's another avenue that's lost uh, in terms of communication with the North Koreans. Right. And actually, that is, we, we've only just touched on that now that yeah covid has uh ironically made north korea well it's almost like north korea in response to covid has started to implement the uh the sanctions you know on itself in a way right yeah if you look at uh some of the some of the data you know obviously the the trade data can be manipulated but you know some of the initial um 2020 data is you know sort of fallen off a cliff mm. Um, so yeah, you know, that, that certainly could be, could be an aspect of it. I, you know, I, I think when we get to a point where there's much more vaccine available, um, you know, worldwide, I think for the United, United States is, you know, much closer to, uh, you know, to the herd immunity that they're looking for. Um, but, you know, I think it'll be a question of, you know, 
it goes back to what we were talking about with the humanitarian uh, operations inside North Korea. You know, what level of, you know, access are the North Koreans going to give so that, you know, it's not just vaccines, obviously, but, mm -hmm. you know, humanitarian assistance, COVID-related uh, humanitarian assistance. You know, I certainly hope that the, the regime would allow that kind of activity. Um, but, uh, you know, based on past history, uh, I'm concerned that they will not. Wouldn't that be a nice gesture of goodwill if the U.S. were to volunteer to go in there with, uh, with free vaccinations? Yeah, I mean, I, I I have not heard the Biden administration say that, but that that would be, you know, the the U.S. is 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 the leader in global health. You know, when you think about, you know, part of what we worked on, you know, in the biodefense sphere, when you think about, you know, the Ebola outbreaks, yeah. and it, it was just a privilege to to see, uh, you know, how, you know, CDC and, and other elements of the U.S. government, the State Department and all the folks who just, you know, were were there to 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 lend that assistance. And, you know, we don't we're not like other countries uh you know that we you know donate money and then we sort of walk away i mean yeah. we're talking about putting people on the ground and really trying to figure out a way to to um you know break some of these outbreaks and and roll them back and that's part of that is because we have a long history doing that not just during crises whether it's ebola or covid but for other, you know, sort of longstanding diseases. And I agree. I mean, I, you know, we've tried this in the past, whether cultural exchanges or, or these kinds of things. It certainly could be an opportunity, an opening for mm. the Biden administration, maybe even in consultation with, you know, other, you know, uh, like minded countries uh, to to offer that kind of assistance and and maybe it does but again it gets back down to the access right because what you what we don't want to have happen is you you know the the Kim regime sees this as is very transactional right? right where we provide the resources and then he grabs that up and gives it to the elites and the military and others you know i think what you and i are talking about at least what i'm hearing is you know really get it into the north korean people and 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 try and assist and help them mm -hmm. but it gets back to this what kind of access are they really would they really be able to provide that but i agree yeah. offering that seems like a would be a good uh gesture i just worry that kim would put too many conditions on it uh, to make it not as uh, not as worthwhile. Anthony, do you have any final thoughts or hopes to leave us with today? No, I think um, you know I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. Oh, uh, you. you know, I think this is uh, this is an interesting. You know, North Korea is always an interesting uh, subject. Uh, I think uh, you know I I'm awaiting the policy review. I think uh, the North Koreans have started their testing again and. Certainly my hope that uh, we see the policy review before the North Koreans launch uh, longer range ballistic mm. missile systems because uh, writing a policy review during a, a, you know, just after a missile launch is uh, I'm sure won't be fun for the uh, NSC <laughs> staffers. Uh, you know, I'm certainly hopeful. Uh, I have been hopeful in the past. Uh, I'm certainly hopeful that, uh, you know, Kim will make the right decision uh, and that we'll, uh, you know, we'll get, closer to our ultimate goal. But, uh, but again, thank you for having me.
Well, thank you once again for coming on the uh, NK News podcast today, Anthony Ruggiero. And don't forget to our listeners, you can find him on Twitter at NatSec, that's short for National Security, NatSec Anthony, all one word. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered for the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Uh, thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Tara Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks and listen again next time.